Welcome to the APM podcast, brought to you by the Chartered Body for the Project Profession. This episode is part of our series of senior leader interviews, hosted by APM Chief Executive, Professor Adam Bodison. This time, Adam is speaking to Baroness Valentine. Having started out working in corporate finance in the city in the 1980s, in recent years, Baroness Valentine has had what she describes as a portfolio career. Her current roles include Chair of Heathrow Southern Railway and Co-Director of Place at Business in the Community. As of 2005, she also sits in the House of Lords as a crossbench member, with a current focus on levelling up. She was also formerly on the boards of both Crossrail and HS2. Listen on to hear Adam and Baroness Valentine discuss what she took from her time in the city into her later career, why the UK struggles to commit to long-term infrastructure plans, and whether the business environment in general has become more inclusive. I'm delighted to be here today with the APM podcast and to welcome today's guest, Baroness Valentine. Welcome. Hello. I'd like to start by uh, asking you to tell us a bit about your career, if I may, from your days in the city right through to your advocacy and charity roles and, and of course, the award of your peerage in 2005. I started in, in corporate finance in the 80s, it must have been. I was the first female in the corporate finance department in Bearings. Uh, I then went and did a regeneration project in Blackburn and Darwin, a completely different field, then came back to work for uh, BOC, British Oxygen Company, leading on planning and finance, then went to, to work for, for London First, I think, which is a campaign group for London, and then... Well, and then sort of started a portfolio career during the 2000s. So I've done National Lottery Commissioner, Peabody Housing Trust. And at the moment, I'm doing two days a week on levelling up, essentially, in sort of forgotten towns around UK. But I was on Crossrail and HS2 boards for the purposes of this conversation. I am currently on Value and Index Property Income Trust, uh, I'm obviously in the Lords, as you mentioned. I'm chairman of something called Heathrow Southern Railway, and I just stopped being vice chair of UCL. So how you can make sense of all that, I don't know. I do sometimes reflect on it and think, what, what, why did it end up being like this? Yes, a, a lot of twists and turns there. I was really interested that you, you, you went, particularly when you were describing your move from the city through to, to the um, regeneration work, that you kind of described it as being completely different. Um, I, I've had a few twists and turns in my own career, not quite as many as, as as you, but what I've found is that sometimes it's the most unexpected things that you pick up in one aspect of your career that are really relevant to another aspect, probably in a way that was really unexpected. And I wonder whether you found that um, in your move from the city into regeneration, that there were things that were really valuable that you'd learned in the city that helped you in that regeneration work? The twists and turns are partly because I thought of myself as an equal to all the men around me, and I was expecting ambitious things of myself. And that was, until much later on, not not really how other people saw me. So that has caused some of the twists and turns. In terms of skill sets from different things, funnily enough, the corporate finance side of things taught me, I mean, there's all arrogance to investment banks doing corporate finance. Um, and what you do is you you pull in, as you know, all the brokers and the whomever, the company and the, the accountants, et cetera, and, and you basically orchestrate what they all do. 
against a very sharp deadline, typically of a issue of shares or takeover or whatever it is. And that taught me some some lessons which I've applied ever since, I guess, um, which is I now and really have forever corralled stakeholders in one form or another to do things. And the other thing is it taught me about hard deadlines. Um, and in the public sector and the charity sector, there doesn't seem to be as as clear an understanding of a hard deadline. Normally, because there, there isn't a real deadline and the other thing from corporate finance is you absolutely don't talk about you know if you've got a takeover going on you obviously don't say at a party you know i'm i'm acting for blah and they're taking over blah whereas the, whereas the government has a very different understanding of absolute secrecy <laughs> if i can put it like that you kind of reflected on the challenges of being one of the, well, I think the only woman you were saying in, in, in some parts of your career. Do you think we've got better uh, now as a, a, well, I'm thinking of the project profession, but probably the world of business more broadly? And what more do you think we still need to do to really make this a truly inclusive business environment? Yes, definitely got better. I mean, I didn't know that I minded until I got to a 50-50 male-female environment in on London first and it was such a relief to not have to talk about male subjects all the time so you know in in, in bearings it was sort of shooting and fishing in 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 Blackburn you know it was sort of you've got to do a, a, a dirty job for it to be a real job etc uh, in in BOC it was golfing I suppose but in in London First, at last, I managed to sort of, you could move between subjects to have conversations about rather than sort of stuck in, in the ruts that a very male environment give you. So, so um, what have we got to learn? I was on a panel talking to a, a load of young people in round Old City Roundabout who were techies, young techies. And there were, there were a group of us oldies talking about, it must have been a women's celebration day or something, talking about barriers to work. And none of the youngsters in the audience understood what we were talking about. And they were all sort of under 30, getting on with stuff. My, my daughter worked for a tech company, actually around there, and um, they had a policy of automatically having average male salaries the same as average female salaries. No matter who they brought in or whatever, they would always average it out across the two sexes, which I, which is, I think is probably not a good policy. But I think some of the tech startup-y type things are innovative on this stuff and sometimes a bit clunky. But I thought it was great that they were doing it and that they understood understood this. Your world feels a bit more stayed and traditional i suppose if you think of sort of railways and and construction and that sort of side of things it all still feels a bit male you know you haven't got somebody at network rail female or transport for london who's female leading it the the, the, the funny thing with some environments and i'm not talking about those two but is when they're very male they don't understand how how bad they look if you're female we were talking earlier about pictures on the wall you know if, if all the pictures are of men if you go into a training center and you're female you know obviously that's not quite working ditto ethnic minorities obviously if all your pictures are of white people that doesn't resonate terribly well so role, i think role models are, are, are very important 
It was interesting, your reflections there on particular sectors, you know, and the kind of the gender balance in different sectors. One of the things I uh, excites me about the project profession is that, you know, whilst it started in kind of telecoms, infrastructure, construction, and so on, it's really broadened out now to be kind of a, a truly kind of pan-sector profession. And what's really interesting is you ne- we, we've now got some sectors, uh, you know, education being a good example, where actually you get uh, a gender skew the, the other way. And I'm, I'm hoping that as a whole, that helps to kind of balance things out across the profession. But um, you're absolutely right. There's certain sectors where there's definitely much more more to be done. One of the things I've been reflecting on, which is whether the project profession actually has a bit of an image problem, because in my, in my mind, before I got involved with APM, I always kind of had this idea that, I don't know, project managers are all about kind of Gantt charts and templates and, you know, telling people what to do and, you know, probably limited to certain sectors. And, you know, my eyes have been opened, really. And so I do wonder whether, uh, particularly leaders, uh, uh, when they're in organisations and not particularly aware of the project profession, I wonder whether they just think it's a really technical kind of administration type thing rather than something that really adds value in terms of uh, delivery, particularly strategy delivery, you know. In business, one one is basically doing project and program management all the time at whatever level you're operating. Uh, one probably doesn't think of it as a sort of profession whilst doing it. So, yes, I think, you know, as as I started, I, I, I'd sort of pigeonholed it into railways when you asked me the question. But I'm 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 well aware of the need for the expertise daily from everybody, really. Um, some bits of the civil service have got this really well honed. Some bits are in terms of what I want out of the civil service. It's often not well honed. Uh, but, but the charity sector, uh, there's this bizarre thing about having to have impact evaluation. But it, it appears to me to be a substitute for the fact that people haven't really said, this is my objective, you know, this will happen if I've, if I've done it. But the, the way that both the charity sector and the public sector use sort of KPIs is sort of box ticking, I suppose is what I'm trying to say. And... Because they use the box ticking, they fail to do the the, the big picture objective. Um, so there's something in that space. I, I, I understand exactly what you mean. I, I was having a conversation actually just yesterday, and I put four statistics up on the screen um, uh, about what percentage of projects have been successful over the past, I think it was the past five years. Um, and I asked people, you know, which statistic they thought was right. And it went from kind of 0.5% of projects are successful right through to 30%. Um, none of them particularly optimistic, I should say. And the reality was they were all correct because it depended on how you determined what we meant by project success, because some of those statistics were uh, were really saying actually if you deliver your project on time within budget to the required specification then that's that's the measure of success but others were you know exactly to the point that you're you're saying were saying well actually that's that's only part of the job. You only really know if it's been successful if you realise the benefits, and that might be ten years after you've finished the actual core delivery, if you like. So I think that vision, I suppose, of what what we mean by success is not consistently understood, in, in my opinion. No, I mean I have this very much in, on the levelling up work I'm doing in the towns around around the UK at the moment, because clearly if you're tackling deprivation, you're not going to sort that out overnight. And yet you don't want an excuse for, uh, you know, spending lots of time researching or just twiddling your thumbs uh, in the in the 
25 years while you wait for the for the deprivation measure to actually change sustainably. Um, so so we, we tend to do milestones along the way that we think will impact the, the deprivation statistic and then sort of check them every year. So when we were campaigning on Crossrail, when I was at, at, at London first, our objective obviously was to get Crossrail, but we would have getting it through Parliament as, you know, one objective or whatever it is each year we would have a, a milestone objective so that you genuinely are making progress you hope well let's talk about some of the specific areas that you, uh, you've kind of re- you know touched on as, you, as you've been giving your responses so far so let's, let's maybe start with crossrail i think you sat on the board of crossrail from 2019 to 2020 and this was a project that you know experienced widely publicized delays cost overruns but actually, despite all of that, if you ask people now, the Elizabeth lines there, you know, what do they think of it? It was really credited uh, both for the end product, but also for the successful turnaround and the grand opening and so on. I just wondered what your insights and reflections were from your time on the Crossrail board and, and that kind of almost 180 degree turnaround there. So I think, you know, big infrastructure projects that, that disrupt people and spend a lot of money look like white elephants, I suppose, as you run into them. I mean, the, the time that I was on the Crossrail board, so I came in after all that trouble with cost overruns and it wasn't finished and all that thing. So we were a new board, came in in, it, was it 2019 you said I was there? And when I left, it was because the, the Crossrail went in underneath um, Transport for London. Um, so it, it was brought much more under the Transport for London umbrella. So the the line and the stations were pretty much built by the time I I arrived. There were thousands and thousands of snagging issues. And, of course, the suspicion that all the consultants working on it are just trying to do more work because that's how they get paid. So they're just going to find another snag and recommend how you deal with it and blah, 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 blah. My perception about that was that unless Transport for London really started pulling Crossrail into Transport for London, um, they were never get they were going to keep going round in circles because it was never in Crossrail's interest to hand over to TfL a station that might have something wrong with it. You know, so Crossrail wanted to make sure they they dotted all the I's across all the T's. From Transport for London's perspective, they didn't want to take on the headache of an additional line and station that they had to manage. So at the time, it looked like a headache from TFL's perspective and no real incentive to complete on the Crossrail side, even though allegedly there there was, because you've got all that baggage of all the consultants and contractors working for you that they're they're not... I don't know how you would. You would know better than me how to incentivise properly in that sort of situation. But but government does seem to get itself into a position where one just hires loads. And I've got nothing against consultants. Please don't take it as this. But hires loads of people and and then doesn't really know how to control them. The other thing I remember clearly from that era was we had a risk register. But I was I was looking at risk registers and thinking actually are these real? You know, there's five hundred risks here. Do, does anybody ever really think about them? Um, so I'm always keen on on risk risk registers, whatever you want to call them, strategic risk registers, sort of five-ish strategic risks that you actually can sort of touch and feel and get your head around. And in, in Crossrail's case, they had a risk register roughly of that type. I, I don't know how many, 100 items or whatever it was. 
Um, but it wasn't connected to Network Rail's risk register and TFL's risk register. And I said, for goodness, for goodness sake, you know, this is your trains have got to come out and go onto Network Rail tracks and they've got to come out and, you know, TFL needs to take over. <laughs> These risks need to be aligned. Anyway, that did happen, but it didn't seem to be obvious to people that that needed to happen, which I found odd. But the other thing is we, we did have Network Rail coming in, updating us monthly or bimonthly, I can't remember. But I, we we weren't good at saying actually, because this sort of risk register thing wasn't clear, what is the information we we want you to give? So all they would do is come up and come up and say, you know, we've we've done some work with some concrete on platform on Reading or whatever it is. You know, we've done our homework. Here we here's what we've done. As opposed to, you know, this is what we, we need to be doing by when this is what's working, this is not what's not working. That's really insightful. Thank you. Um, and and a couple of things for those people listening to, to, to this podcast. So we, APM has partnered with both Crossrail and with HS2 to, pro, to produce learning legacy type documents. They're available on the APM website. And for people who are interested in knowing more about some of the lessons learned on those two projects, uh, of which there have been many, then you, you, you can obviously access those. But I wanted to just pick up on one thing you said, if, if, if I may, Baroness Valentine, which was you talked about some of the kind of contractors who might be in the supply chain where there's almost no incentive to kind of do a good job, if you like, or not, well, not no incentive, maybe not, not lots of incentives to do a good job because actually you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you and the project goes on longer. That's obviously good because that's where your income comes from. But I think there's also another issue, which is if something's going wrong, what's the incentive to call it out and say that it's going wrong early on because that might might also get you kind of booted off the project, especially if it's, you know, in your area. And all of those things kind of fall into this category of what I think of a strategic misrepresentation where right the way through the supply chain, you might, for different reasons, you've got people who are not being totally transparent about what the reality of the situation is. So those making the strategic decisions might have their risk register and everything in front of them, like you've just described, but that's not necessarily giving an accurate picture of what's going on. That was allegedly very true of Crossrail before before I got on the board. So, so as you will know, the, the, the there was a sort of um, flare up with it when it was alleged to be ready, and then and then it was two years away, uh, and and that was absolutely alleged to be an issue that the that the issues at mid level or ground level were not being surfaced to the top. I mean, I think that's poor line management. I, you, that's just that just is poor line management. Um, so I think. I'm not meaning to blame anyone. I, the, all the people I work with on these things are are, um, are generally very good and generally trying trying to do um, a, a good job. We're APM, the only chartered membership organisation for the project profession. When you become an APM member, you'll receive the resources and support you need to make an impact, delivering better projects with better outcomes. Plus, you'll access exclusive training and benefits to support your ongoing career development. Find out how we can help you reach your potential by visiting apm.org.uk. Because when projects succeed, society benefits. 
can we move on to, to business in the community? Because you mentioned that as well earlier on. Ahead of this kind of conversation, I, I, I went to have a, a look on the website and, and I really like the focus uh, uh, on kind of green and sustainability and, and so on and combining that with the kind of the business side of things. It was obviously very strong within business in the community. I don't see that as strongly in every business. Do you think businesses have got a lot to learn from business in the community? You know, why do you think not everybody has got that uh, razor-sharp focus on, on green that business in the community has got? When you get down to people who are really struggling with cost of living and things like that, whether you're being green is secondary to, to whether you can eat for the day. So at Business Community, one of the things we're just newly doing is a, is a community climate fund which is trying to help communities move to net zero. And we're trying to be innovative about different ways of doing that. But it, but it, at its really simplest, it would be um, putting solar panels on a, on a community building or um, doing allotments to get local food production, whatever. But you can see perfectly well why those residents don't have it as a priority. And that connects quite closely to SMEs. And so SMEs likewise probably don't largely have it as a, a, a priority because they sort of don't have the luxury of thinking about it. If you then talk about larger companies, I guess you need to look through to the investors. I'm not sure whether the city and their investors is is quite as sharp-edged as they could be on, on this green stuff. And we, we issued a green bond in, in UCL, which was which was interesting. But, but there's a question, I guess, as an investor, are you prepared to take a slightly lower dividend or interest rate for something being green? And, and most companies aren't having that sort of conversation with their investors. And that would be interesting. So if you're not in that space, you're basically looking at technology, which is, is green or, or satisfying regulation or, or stuff you can do that doesn't cost. You kind of touched on levelling up as well. I know this is something that's really close to your heart. I wonder if you might tell me what you see as the main challenges in rebalancing wealth and opportunity across the UK. I don't know whether the aim is to, whether a credible aim is to rebalance the economy. Um, and it does play into the question about London's role in the in the UK. But um, and I'm very anti any suggestion that London should be levelled down. But so I think if you're looking at a, a, a a bunch of difficult places. There must be loads of them around the UK. It's probably a thousand. From the sort of thing I do, which is to go in and try and get local stakeholders to buy into a, a route map where where they, with some help from others, can actually identify where they want to get to and start work on getting turning around a town. So Blackpool, I did a lot of work in. So setting an agenda for action and then actually implementing it. I would love the levelling up department to work better with what I do. I, I, I don't need a lot from them. I just need strategic engagement and a bit of match funding for some of the stuff we do. They throw millions at places, but but actually in the early days when you're just trying to get people aligned to a common agenda, you, you don't need a lot of money at that front end. And actually it's sometimes counterproductive to put in money before you've got the trust built locally but so i think places need to have the right dynamic to start leveling up and sometimes you've got 
weak councils. Um, sometimes you've got weak business. Sometimes the communities are at war with each other, whatever. So it, for me, it feels like a constant ambition, but going with the grain of where it's possible and and being smart about going in and supporting, I don't know, Manchester Combined Authority, if, they, if, they, if they're starting to move in the right direction, getting behind them and really helping make that happen. So um, I, it's a very difficult question how you level up a country um, uh, as any government of the future will be um, thinking about. You obviously are a, a huge advocate for, for London as well. You mentioned that in there, you know, you don't want no suggestion at all of levelling down London. Um, and I'm just reflecting on your your time running London First, obviously now called uh, Business London, which advocated for, and still advocates for London as a business hub. There is that view that, that we're quite London-centric as a country, and that's a kind of barrier to economic growth uh, in other places. What, what do you say to those kind of people who have that who have that view um are they right yes um you've got power bases in london which are the city the government and to a lesser extent probably higher education i'm always disappointed when ministers and civil servants say they're coming up to sheffield or blackpool or whatever and they co- they cancel because in their eyes something more important has come up and that just, to me, says such a lot about the attitude. So, you know, if you're going out to somewhere that, that really values your turning up and cares, you know, about all that stuff, then that needs to be far better respected than thinking that a minister suddenly, I don't know, the Secretary of State called you into a meeting. The Secretary of State should be told, I've already got a meeting up in Blackpool. No, I'm not coming. Um, but that's, you know, that that would be, <laughs> that's not the way it works. Um, so if I were thinking about UK long term, I would definitely seek to move probably government out of London in some way. They're always theoretically doing that. I think devolution is the much the strongest um, lever for doing that. So I think the combined authorities, the mayoral things is is uh, is a good good direction of travel. And, and both parties are really heading in that direction. Let's talk a bit about securing government backing for projects. At the moment, sometimes we see projects getting approved, which are, I don't know, maybe pet projects or vanity projects or ones that are politically expedient rather than necessarily always the right projects and programmes that would be you know, the best for society long term. Why do you think that kind of thing happens and, and what do you think government could or should do about it? Well, I, I, I mean, I hoped the National Infrastructure Commission was going to be um, helpful on this. I mean, we seem to be so bad at committing to long-term plans, infrastructure plans in this country. I have to go across across parliaments. Um, so, you know, you need to be 20 years. Uh, in fact, my the chief exec of, of Heathrow Southern Railway was in, was in Berlin two days ago and just talking about how the Germans do it, to, who, who, of course, have a much clearer plan. Uh, which has the disadvantage if if you can't change it very easily. So I probably mind less that the wrong projects are done. So I think if there are infrastructure projects which have some benefit um, and have little disbenefit, I mean, not uh, not enough are done by thinking about the wider wider social and environmental impact, which, which I hope the Treasury is beginning to get better at. 
Um, but 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 you know who who is one to judge what a what a right and a wrong project is? But but I do think we desperately need a long term direction of travel, and 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 I'm thinking particularly. <laughs> Of the airport stuff so so you know we set up the airports commission to decide what we were doing but then we've essentially not been doing what it recommended for 10 years now or whatever it is so um we just seem to be incapable of taking that long view i when you when people talk about restructuring the lords and the and the commons i would be quite interested in some relationship between the lords and the commons where where the lords sort of owned the longer term plan so so you could have some 20-year plans on housing education whatever which would need to go across uh, parliaments and and somehow the lords could be the conscience of that where where the commons is doing all the political infighting and you know their their day-to-day stuff um that would seem to me to be a helpful role for the lords yeah, it's a really interesting idea. I've never thought about that before, but it does make sense because obviously you've got more continuity uh, in, in, in that house. Just one final question uh, before we probably need to wrap up. Sometimes when I talk to uh, senior civil servants, um, occasionally politicians as well, they talk to me about the fact that sometimes trying to get the right projects approved is really, really difficult because uh, either they're going to cost too much money, they're not going to be completed within their political tenure maybe. They've described a situation where they kind of almost uh, are not completely transparent about the full complexity or full cost or how long a project's going to take up front because they say that um, it's much easier to get a project uh, approved by going for something simpler um, uh, and, then, and then to go through the change control process once a project's already approved, and that's an easier way of getting to the end game. And, and of course, that just ends up costing <laughs> The public purse a lot more because you know because we're not being clear about costs and things from the outset and it takes longer and then we end up with all of this you know uh, stuff in the media about projects failing because they're late and so on i mean that feels to me like a, a really wrong way to go about things i mean is that a genuine problem do you think or or is it just a, something that happens occasionally I mean, I haven't thought about it quite that way, but when, certainly what I see is is projects going in that cost two billion which you know, probably common sense would tell you cost five billion. I, I mean, I, I think the Treasury uh, must be quite quite aware of this sort of issue. I, I, I was thinking earlier about the the Department of Transport and Treasury in in managing um, projects like Crossrail or HS2 because I I always think the client really has to bear the brunt if a project doesn't work. So it's all very well saying HS2 or Crossrail have failed, but actually the governance going back up the chain is failing and um you know it's all it's very easy again to beat up um uh, government departments but i think because no one quite has the authority to to be the client probably you know you've got the treasury looking over your shoulder if you're the dft so you never feel like you're quite in charge and it's something around we we did at HS2 a thing where I think that the the risks on a project we were doing were looked at nine times before they were authorised, and we actually worked out that we were building risk in by doing that process rather than <laughs> reducing risk. Um, so there's something about that whole process which which is very unhealthy. Uh, I think the infrastructure projects authority, you know, there's there've been attempts to 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 deal with these things better, but they're thought of as processes, whereas actually the sort of accountability that needs to be 
sorted out. Um, probably where you've got a strong lead, I think Michael Gove is a strong lead on, on, on levelling up. You can then sort of hold the fort a bit better, but um, mostly things aren't strongly led. The minister changes, the Secretary of State changes, etc. So I don't, I don't know what the solution is. I'm afraid. Okay, well, uh, yeah, it's good to hear your reflections on that, uh, Baroness Valentine. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the APM podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review, or why not contact us with your feedback at apmpodcast at thinkpublishing.co.uk. For more on levelling up, check out the resources published by APM as part of its Future Lives and Landscapes campaign, which seeks to raise awareness of the social value of projects by highlighting the many benefits they create for people and communities and by helping practitioners and organisations incorporate benefits into projects to shape the future economic, social and physical landscape of the UK. To find out more, search Future Lives and Landscapes at apm.org.uk or see the link in the episode description. That's it from us for today. Thanks for listening.